You're listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast about world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Hi, I'm Kevin Dunn, Professor of Political Science and Director of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. And I'm Stacey philbrick of Chair of Political Science at Hobart and William Smith. Today we're recording this episode the day after the reading of the verdict against Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd, which hopefully will be a step towards accountability within the struggle for justice. And today's episode actually deals with a question of justice, specifically a discussion about transitional justice and reparative development. We're joined with the architect of this episode, Emma Falkenstein. Hi, Emma. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi. It's great to be with both of you today. My name is Emma Falkenstein, and I'm a senior William Smith student, double majoring in international relations and anthropology. My regional concentration in the IR major focuses on the Middle East or North Africa. And during my junior year, I had the opportunity to study abroad in Rabat, Morocco on a program focused on migration. On campus, I'm currently an IR teaching fellow, a captain of the William Smith rowing team, and in the HWS Leeds certificate program. Now, the topic of this episode is heavily informed by a course you took with Professor Philbrick Yadav on transitional justice. Stacy, can you explain what that concept is and what you hope to achieve in that class? Sure. So transitional justice is a concept that encompasses a really broad range of institutions and practices that are used in post-conflict contexts to rebuild and repair the harms that are produced by war, conflict, and other forms of systemic violence. Those harms are experienced by individuals, but individuals are also members of groups. So transitional justice can operate at both levels concurrently. The concept really emerged historically in the mid 20th century in a highly legalistic and many would argue deeply flawed form at the Nuremberg trials. But it really took off after the Cold War as lots of countries experienced forms of regime change and responded to different kinds of conflicts. Mechanisms of transitional justice range from really formal institutional approaches like trials, truth commissions, and reparations programs, to cultural production and forms of public memory. By the 21st century, arguably, transitional justice mechanisms have become institutionalized as part of a post-conflict toolkit promoted by international organizations, especially the United Nations. But there's also a good critical literature on the disconnect between local peacebuilding practices and this global toolkit approach. So I designed the seminar to kind of address this range of issues. What is transitional justice? Where did it come from? What are some critical perspectives on transitional justice today? The seminar was really designed for two reasons. So in part, it was because I knew I had a great group of seniors, many of whom had taken my political violence course, who would be really excited about engaging questions that have both normative and empirical dimensions. But it was also about laying groundwork for my current book project on transitional justice and the conflict in Yemen. So that made the seminar, which is on a really heavy topic, you know, it made it kind of fun in a way because it meant that we really got to explore this literature together and learn together. And I can definitely see how questions that students raised in their research, including Emma's research that she's gonna talk about a little bit about the political capture of truth commissions 
I can see how that's going to shape the direction of my book. Yeah, you know, that's great. As a professor, it's always so rewarding when our scholarship intersects with our teaching and when the two become mutually reinforcing. Emma, can you speak a bit about your own work in that class? What's been the focus of your own research? So my final research project for this transitional justice seminar explored what we might be able to learn from decision-making processes behind a regime's use and scope of truth commissions in the cases of Morocco, Bahrain, and Tunisia. I chose these cases as a way to examine how regimes utilize transitional justice mechanisms, in this case, truth commissions, and how the context in which truth commissions were utilized influences the types of harms and categories of victimhood within them. I found through my case analysis that truth commissions can be implemented as a way of facilitating societal reconciliation, but also as a means of consolidating regime control. For example, Bahrain's Independent Commission of Inquiry was created as a means of demobilizing popular unrest during the Arab uprisings, and the result report findings were not implemented to recognize the broad scope of regime harm. The takeaway from my research was that truth commissions as transitional justice mechanisms are pliable in how they can be used to accomplish the goals of a regime. In a broader sense, my research explored how the field of transitional justice could benefit from widening not only its understanding of the context in which truth commissions are used, but extending the scope of inquiry to be expansive in order to acknowledge the everyday and structural injustices that touch the lives of survivors. Yeah, these are extremely important and complicated issues. My own research in Africa, particularly Rwanda, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, might not directly address these issues, but I'm constantly reflecting on how issues of justice, reconciliation, and development continue to be of primary importance in post-conflict societies. And these, these are issues with a global scope. You know, my examples are from Africa. Both of you referenced the Middle East. And in episode three of this podcast, similar concepts were touched upon by our host Carly regarding Japan and Korea. And for this episode, Emma, you spoke with Professor Lauren Marie Belasco of Stockton University, whose fieldwork is primarily in Latin America. So let's listen to that conversation now. So I'm here with Professor Belasco from Stockton University, and I invited her on this podcast today because I wanted to bring her helpful concept of reparative development to our listeners. And so I'm personally really intrigued about the genesis of this concept and how you developed it in your own work. Can you talk a bit about how you became interested in transitional justice and how it came to be the focus of your research? Well, first, thank you so much, Emma, for inviting me onto this podcast, and I'm really uh, happy to be spending this time talking to you about transitional justice. Uh, a little bit of background about me. I um, So I graduated from Randolph-Macon Women's College uh, for my undergraduate degree, and I where I double majored in international studies and political science, and there I really started to understand the intersection between global politics, right, and local politics, global justice and local justice initiatives. And after college, I started working in community organizing in the field of uh, intimate partner violence and uh, domestic violence issues, and then later homelessness. Uh, by the time I started at graduate school, I really had this intersection of interests, right, um, between human rights, international law, and also, you know, the work that I was doing on the ground after I graduated from college. So I think like any researcher, you start to stumble upon 
uh, research and new ideas as you start reading. And when you're studying mass atrocities and collapse of, of regimes, you know, the, the impending question always is, you know, how how do you rebuild, right? How do you reestablish that relationship between states and citizens? And that's when I started really digging into the field of transitional justice. Oh, that's very interesting. I, I really like how you focused on the intersection of the local as a glo- uh, and global as an international relations major and anthropology major. I feel like I'm also trying to combine those things and that anthropology is really focused on the local context, local culture, understanding all of that, where international relations is also about comparing and how can we learn from the local and see how it, apply, uh, see how it applies more broadly. Absolutely. So then going off of that, uh, you became interested in transitional justice through learning about how do we rebuild after there's been conflict and like mass atrocities. And so I know that your background is also in Latin American studies. And so which came first, the cases or the theories in your interest in transitional justice? Were you That's interested in- such an in excellent la- question. Yes. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I think it was- when I was reading, and there's a period of a lot of reading, there was a combination, it was sort of a combination of both, right? Um, Where I I was studying some of the theories of transitional justice, but also reading some of the amazing empirical work that was being done in the field, um, particularly regarding, you know, the interviewing of victim survivors, right? Understanding how do these processes play out on the ground? So I would say at the start, it it was a combination of both, um, but then I sort of, took a step back and for my dissertation, I started looking at the intersection between human security and transitional justice. And by studying those two fields and where they perhaps intersect theoretically, that's when I started to develop my cases. And so while my predominant background is in Latin America, for my dissertation, two of my cases were actually in Kenya and Uganda. and and particularly those countries, their relationship with the International Criminal Court. Uh, So I I think that it it started out, you know, reading everything. And then as I developed my theory, I identified my cases and conducted fieldwork and went from there. Would you mind talking a little bit about your fieldwork experience? Uh, I didn't really know how or I'd, I'd be interested to know more about how you kind of came across your cases for your dissertation. Sure. Um, so for my dissertation, I spent about six to eight weeks in The Hague, uh, where I was also uh, earning a certificate in international public and private law. And I also have spent time in Colombia, uh, Peru. Uh, I was in Chile just a, a couple of years, 2019, which, you know, pre-pandemic, it seems like it was years ago. And also, you know, in particular with some of my recent work with Chile, I actually visit some of these memory sites uh, that have been popping up fairly recently in the last 10, 20 years or so uh, that have really worked to establish a public memory of the dictatorship while also uh, paying attention to some of the current human rights repression that's been happening. So then going back to a couple of your theories, I am curious to know more about your concept of reparative development. So within transitional justice, there is a debate about the role of reparations in addressing socioeconomic structural injustices. 
Can you help me better understand what's at stake in discussions of reparations and addressing socioeconomic injustice and post-conflict reconstruction? Is it primarily about the difference between individual level and collective reparations, or is there more to it? There's a lot more to it. It is not a settled um, question, right, or, or settled debate in any sense of the word, because a lot of it is, you know, it depends on local context, right? Uh, when we think about reparative justice and reparations, I think one of the key drivers of, of the theory is that it should be victim or survivor centered, right? And so that means that you know, transitional justice initiatives need to listen to those who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of these just uh, of these justice acts, right? Such as reparations. So, in in my work, I think what originally interested me in this intersection was seeing all the phenomenal empirical research that was being done, where you know survivors were interviewed, you know, and when asked how do you conceive of reparations. Um, sometimes it was monetary compensation, but other times it was about access to health care or land restitution or employment opportunities, education opportunities. And so you start to see um, a theme where, you know, one's sense of justice is tied to their livelihood conditions. But the problem is, um, you know, they are two pretty broad fields, transitional justice and development, right? Sometimes they intersect, sometimes there's tension. I think there are really three main ideas, if I could kind of encapsulate some of the major debates. And that's, you know, when we think about the legitimacy of reparations, clarity in terms of how do we distinguish reparations from development projects, and also the political and financial will to e execute these programs, right? So Pamina Furchow has done some great work in Colombia where, you know, one I think it was a 2013 article, she was able, you know, one of her key takeaways from her interviews and, and the field work she did was, you know, do communities need to bleed first in order to access basic needs? right? Things that we conceive of within the development field. And so there becomes this question of what is the state's obligation to all of its citizens, especially after conflict, right? Regardless whether you were a direct victim or not, people need basic needs to survive. And shouldn't there be an obligation for them to be able to have access to housing, clean water, shelter, um, safety, right? From physical threats, regardless of their history. Um, so, so th there was always this, you know, th there, there is this tension of, you know, how do you distinguish between those programs that really should benefit all people in, in, in a society versus those, again, those development related claims to justice that people are making. And, and that's how they would like to conceive of reparations. And so I think that there is a, a need, right, for legitimacy amongst the population to see uh, and execute reparations the way survivors would like to see them manifested. Um, but I also think there is a need not to, not for, for, for citizens to feel like they have to experience trauma or violence or harm in order to have access to basic livelihood guarantees. Would you mind kind of expanding on this justice-based framework? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think about, this kind of gets into, you know, 
you know, why reparative development? And, and, and in fact, you know, my thoughts on it have kind of evolved since I wrote the article. When we see transitional justice in play today, it's no longer tied to regime change, right? In the early 1980s, it was often tied, we think about Latin American cases and the transition from authoritarianism to democracy. Now we're dealing with a lot more post-conflict cases. Sometimes it's tied to cases where there's been no regime change, right? Or we're looking at consolidated democracies like in the United States and Canada. And so I think there is a, a very real question. Well, if transitional justice is no longer you know, tied to political transitions, then can we widen our scope for how policies are established that still recognize harms that were caused in the past? right, structural injustices, or in even those countries that have engaged in transitional justice processes, we know transitional justice, the toolkit, so to speak, is very limited in what it can execute. Oftentimes, these are negotiations or, you know, it, it takes a lot of political will to, to mobilize these initiatives. There might be limited funding to carry them out. So to imagine that there's going to be these wide ranging structural reforms made, especially in those when there are these initial fragile transitions in a country, you know, that might be too idealistic. But in the long term, how do we think about structural change that pays attention to the abuses uh, you know, um, violence and discrimination that has happened in the past, right? Recognize that as, as, as a, and, and so that you craft a policy in acknowledgement of that, that again, it ends up benefiting everybody, right? It doesn't require the individual to, to apply or, or to be recognized as a survivor of a victim, but simply to acknowledge the, a historical record of harms done. Um, by, by a state or, or political regime. Can you talk a bit about how reparative development balances the individual and the collective in assessing and readdressing harm? On the one hand, it seems concerned with the kinds of structural harm that appear collective, but you also anchor this in the lost life opportunities of individuals. In my own coursework, I've seen a similar balance in the work of capabilities approach scholars like Martha Nussbaum and Amartya Sen. What are the theoretical anchors for you for this concept of lost life opportunities? I mean, you name them, right? I was embedded in Sen and, and Nussbaum when I was doing my reading. So I was very, you know, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've also, you know, read and listened to Vandana Shiva, uh, Angela Davis, Grace Lee Boggs, you know, more recently for the book project that I'm working on, I'm sort of moving a little bit beyond reparative development. Although I think some of the work that the analytical work I've done with that is carrying forward. Um, but I'm also seeing a lot of the transformative justice work that's coming out of the United States uh, with Maya Shenoir and Victoria Law. Uh, they wrote a fantastic book called Prison by um, Any Other Name, right? Looking at how the criminal justice system can simply replicate itself, even if we move beyond this narrow idea of mass incarceration. Uh, we think about intergenerational trauma, right? And, and, and how that can, you know, one person's, um, you know, the harm endured by one person, but even even someone who may have been harmed by the situation that they're in, it, that's all connected, right? Like we are all connected to each other through our families, through our, our neighbors, our communities. And so when I'm thinking about lost life opportunities, 
it, it's much more broader than income, right? And I think that's also where this reparative development idea expands beyond like the traditional work of development that Amartya Sen had rejected long ago, right? It's not about just about GDP, economic growth, um, employment opportunities. It's about thinking about the systems that we need to reform, right, or, or, or radically change so that people can not only live life's uh, livelihoods of, of dignity, right, um, but, but that we recenter, right, the values of, of, human, of humanitarianism. Um, and we think about ways in which we can build people up right, instead of uh, harms that continue, whether they're structural, right, or, or direct, that continue to perpetuate even after maybe a conflict or an authoritarian regime ends. Nice. So then this life opportunity, this lost life opportunities are then extremely tied to this survivor-centered approach in recognizing that in any post-conflict situation or post-regime change, there needs to be an acknowledgement of, of past harm, but also I like how they're forward-looking in terms of planning for the future and enabling people to hopefully regain what they've lost, and whether that be education or access to resources. And it's not just about receiving reparations from the state. It's about how can the state and different organizations help to actually rebuild in the entirety, not just a tiny sliver. Yeah, that, I mean, you said that so well, Emma. Right? <laughs> Even better than I said it myself. Yeah, I mean, listen, repair. When I when I was working on this concept of reparative development, it was not meant to be in contestation with reparative justice, right? But rather, maybe an offshoot or another lens by which we can start to broaden the scope of of what it means to um, think about livelihoods after trauma right after conflict or, or authoritarianism. And, and you're absolutely right, it's forward looking, right? So, so, but I think to be forward looking, it's still important to acknowledge, you know, the roots of, of abuse, right? The roots of, of structural injustices, because any forward looking policy, right? Doesn't, you don't want it to reproduce or repackage, but still, you know, maybe in a different name, maybe through a different institution, but you know, the outcome's still the same where you have levels of inequality, marginalized populations, right? Continue to either be outcast or, or unable to, to assert their political agency within, within a system, within a system or within a community, right? So that connection between past and present is still very, important and it's important that survivors have a say in articulating that and then any policies or initiatives that emerge exactly they need to be forward looking no i really like that when you were conducting your field work during your dissertation the people that you talked to did any of them like in expressing what they hoped to get out of reparations or like reparative development or the process of reconstructing their lives. Was there a particular outlook that you saw in terms of how people kind of wanted to receive acknowledgement from the state, from within their communities, anything like that? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll give you, you know, sort of a recent, I think, uh, example that that's been in the news. And that, and again, referring back to Chile right now, and I don't know if you've been following, but you know, there have been these series of uprisings and protests in 2019. And when people were marching in the streets, they were saying it's not 30 pesos referring to the metro, the, the percentage in a metro, uh, a, fair, a hike in metro fares. Uh, it's it's 30 years, right? And, and they were connecting these legacies um, between, you know, the, the Pinochet era and today's democracy in that, you know, the, the, the neoliberal economic structure has not benefited everyone, <laughs> right? Inequality is pervasive and uh, poverty has increased. It's really, the economic system has only benefited, you know, the, the political and the economic elite. You know, the, the reparation, programs in Chile, in some sense, they had what we've been talking about, right? They were access to uh, health care, mental health care, like physical health care, right? Uh, they, they were pretty comprehensive. They weren't just like monetary compensation. But when you talk to people today, we think about the economic structure, right? That have that has hurt a lot of people, even if they were not directly, uh, you know, persecuted by the Pinochet regime or their families weren't, right? The legacy of that economic structure still persists. And so how, you know, how do you do, do you address that? And I think that Chile is working on that, right? They're, they're, they're going to have a new constitution or they're in the process of electing a constituent assembly to rewrite a constitution to address these socioeconomic issues. Um, but you can see that there's a tension because sometimes the structural transformations that occur under a prior regime may not you know, be fully recognized in a transitional justice process. Instead, it's those who were directly harmed, right? Tortured, imprisoned, exiled, right? Family members who were killed. And yet the broader legacies still have an impact on wider society, right? And so I think you, you, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the Chilean case is that you're able to see that short and that long term perspective about how do you do address right these these immediate issues of, of survivors of these detention facilities right or people who lost loved ones who were disappeared, but then also think about the economic transformations that happened that continue to hurt Chilean society. So there's definitely kind of multiple layers of addressing past yes. and current harm. And so what is the role of, in your reparative development article, you talk about the role of community organizations or mm -hmm. grassroots organizations in facilitating reparative development. I'm currently in an anthropology senior seminar that's focused on engaged or public anthropology. And in political science, this would be called action research. Would you mind talking about like what you think the role of community organizations is in helping to facilitate reparative development? And do we need like local engagement? What does it provide for the transitional justice process? Yeah, it's an excellent question and it's absolutely essential, right? Local engagement, grassroots organizing. Listen, those in power are not gonna give up that power <laughs> willingly, right? They're not going to hold themselves accountable out of good, I don't mean to have a cynical outlook, but deeper democracy requires engagement on all on all levels, right? 
we can demand change at the national level of any country, right? And that's important. But that, you know, the work starts in local communities where people have ownership over the type of change that they want to see, that people feel as if they are political participants in articulating how they want their, how they envision their society, whether it's economically, right? Whether it's it's through a more just system. And so local, local legitimacy is important. But more importantly, when we think about what transitional justice is supposed to do, and that is to, I mean, in the long term, right? And again, this is very early vision that transitional justice was supposed to facilitate democracy, rule of law, human rights. We know that 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 causality is a little bit murkier now. But what we also know is that, you know, people in power, if, if they are to be held accountable, right, that requires local engagement, local mobilization. Um, and, and to have a sustained effort to make demands on those who are in power. And so for me, it's essential, that kind of work. I like how you bring that up because also part of my project talked about the decision-making process behind regimes deciding to use transitional justice, which I think is interesting if we kind of if we compare it to local ownership over a transitional process in terms of why does a state choose to use transitional justice? Is it to actually account for past harms and give reparations and acknowledge regime abuses? Or is it potentially in the case of Bahrain to put a stop to political mobilization that's intended to create change? And so I like how your your focus on community ownership and like local community engagement is so important in actually being able to change the lives and expand the impact of transitional justice from just national to like local. Yeah. And what I really appreciate about your insight there, which is just so important, is that transitional justice itself is not inherently good. It can be politicized. It can be manipulated. It can exclude. So when we evaluate the impact, right, that transitional, first we can evaluate maybe the motivations, which which is what you're getting at, right, for, for the design and execution of transitional justice. And we can also evaluate the impact that it has. You know, sometimes you have to look beyond the commission. You have to look beyond the, the speeches and the discourse and really dig into who is at the table, right? Who, who, who has who is able to offer insight into what justice will look like, right? And and to your point, where where is that happening, right? Is it only happening in the capital? Is it only happening right? You know, within around the state, or do you see mobilization happening in other parts of the country as well? And and further, are those justice initiatives maybe in contention with what the state envisions? So. You know, I think that's what's you know so important with from the political science perspective on in transitional justice, right? How political scientists can study it is that that we're, we're focused on power, right? And and how is where do we locate the power within these transitional justice initiatives, and how is that power being distributed, if at all? Mm. Switching gears, I heard a story on NPR the other day about how the city of Evanston, Illinois, will make reparations available to eligible 
black residents for harms caused by discriminatory housing policies and practices and an action on the city's part. This is believed to be the first of its kind in the United States. And in 2019, the city council established a reparations fund to address historical wealth and opportunity gaps for black residents. Is reparative development something the United States could look into to start to address the lost life opportunities within black communities? Yeah, I think the NPR article is an excellent example, right, of, of sort of how I'm envisioning, like how I, I sort of thought about this concept of reparative development. Um, you know, I think one thing to emphasize is I don't necessarily think reparative development is meant to replace anything, right? So, you know, there have been talk of, of reparations, truth commissions, right? We've seen like local truth commissions in the United States, public acknowledgments, accountability measures, all of those, right? Um, are important, especially if there are communities who are saying this is what we want, right? But I, I do think that reparative development is, you know, starting to unfold a little bit in the United States with the example that you gave. And I also, you know, I was just recently reading about Biden's infrastructure plan. And, you know, there are some major components of the plan that have this justice layer to it. When you think about highways that were built right in the middle of predominantly communities of color, right? Com cutting these people off from, uh, you know, major cities or just disrupting communities, dislocating people. You know, the infrastructure plan, they're not too specific on how they're going to fix that or, or, or recognize and repair that. But there's, at, at least there's, there's this acknowledgement that these things need to be fixed. Like the, not only should they not be reproduced, but we also need to address the inequities and exclusions that have emerged because in the name of development, right? We've just, there were these projects that dramatically hurt communities of color, right? Uh, in the infrastructure plan, they're talking about getting rid of or replacing lead pipes which we know, right, it's children of color who are predominantly victim to that. It's incredibly harmful. Um, when we think about infrastructure, it's more than just building bridges or repairing highways, right? It, that's part of it, but there's this also part of human investment, right? And hum, human investment in, in like employment opportunities or, or uh, industries like caring for the elderly, caring for the disabled, where these positions are typically low wage, they're not recognized as high value, even though they're absolutely essential and hard work. And again, right, it's typically women of color who are doing this kind of work. So investing, I think it's like almost $400 billion in investment just in, 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 in that, those industries. I think that, you know, is also a way that we might think about reparative development. It's not reparations, right? It's want to be clear about that. It's not necessarily a justice initiative and they're not even Biden administration's not even necessarily using infrastructure as like a justice initiative. But yet you see right in this big plan that there are um hints of it, right? That 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 there's it's built in in a way that's not meant to just reproduce the infrastructure plans of the past. Well, so we've covered a lot in this interview. And so thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. This has been so fun. 
One of the things that I love the most about this conversation is its genuinely global reach. Moving from Latin America to Africa to the Middle East to Evanston, Illinois, really highlights one of the best aspects of research on transitional justice, which is the willingness to think about lessons that can be derived from experiences in really different parts of the world. So some scholars really rightly criticize the excessively universalizing or one-size-fits-all approach of some transitional justice practitioners. But your conversation is a really good reminder that we don't want to get entirely trapped in an area studies mindset either, or one that privileges one kind of similarity at the expense of identifying important cross-regional commonalities. Your conversation with Professor Belasco really showcases the way in which some kinds of wonky questions about post-conflict institutions are really intimately tied to underlying questions about justice, and more specifically, justice for whom and justice for what. And those questions are not region or country specific. Yes, I really like how Professor Belasco and I were able to touch on the scope of what transitional justice has to offer in a variety of contexts. I think the questions you brought up about justice for whom and for what really gets to the heart of the broader idea of reparative development and expanding our understanding of the ability for transitional justice to address numerous injustices. Implementing transitional justice mechanisms can be both a regime strategy and a means of facilitating reconciliation as there is no one size fits all model. But broadening our understanding of transitional justice can help us to recognize the potential for transitional justice to facilitate the search for justice. And in a broader sense, I think all of us as IR scholars can recognize what transitional justice has to do in a broader global scale, but for us in the United States as well. So it can be kind of challenging sometimes to see the real world application of some of the more abstract normative theories that we cover in our courses. And I really want to applaud you for zeroing in on Professor Belasco's use of the concept of lost life opportunities as a foundation for reparative development, because that was a great way to show what the capabilities approach looks like in practice. And, you know, to think about some of the scholars you've read and engaged in our curriculum, like Amartya Sen or Martha Nussbaum, she seemed a little surprised that you picked up on that. Yes, I was pleasantly surprised that Professor Belasco based her concept of lost life opportunities off of the capabilities approach. And I was hoping there'd be a connection when I went into my interview, but I wasn't sure. Recognizing the capabilities approach in Professor Blasco's work was a great way to connect the various classes I've taken during my time at HWS. I remember talking about the capabilities approach in my Intro to Comparative Politics course during my freshman year, so it was a really cool way to see the connections to aspects of transitional justice three years later. That's great. You know, as a teacher, it's always rewarding when students are able to make connections across courses and across their entire college career. Now, listeners of this podcast know that we always include a non-traditional text that connects to the episode's theme. And Professor Belasco suggested the 2012 film, No, which tells the story of Chile's national referendum on whether General Pinochet's regime should stay in power and whether there should be an open democratic presidential election the following year. And the film kind of captures some of the tensions of transitional justice as a society struggles to come to terms or not uh, with the horrific atrocities that were enacted for years by the military regime. And while we obviously can't include the entire film in this podcast, we can share the theme song, which is the beautiful No La Quiero by Isabel Parra. So let's listen to that song now. Thank you. 
es el príncipe para los gitanos, no es la espada para el mosquetero, no es enigma para el hechicero. No, 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 no me gusta, no, no lo quiero, no, no me gusta, no. Hace mal verlo todos los días, me molesta su sonrisa fría, me incomoda su literatura, me deprime su minicultura. No, 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 no me gusta, no, no lo quiero, no, no me gusta, no, no lo quiero, no, no. No prospera su deje y maneje, no convence su cara de jefe. a great example of the role of cultural production in transitional justice and social movements more broadly. Mobilizing voters on this referendum was a part of the process of constructing a kind of shared post-conflict narrative and charting a path forward for Chileans that isn't really reducible just to the institutional act of voting. So I'm really grateful to Professor Belasco for putting this film on my radar, along with so much else, like the concept of reparative development. Developing this course and now following up on it with you, Emma, it's been a really rich learning process for me. And so I want to thank you for joining us and for connecting us to Professor Belasco and her work. 
Yeah, Emma, thank you so much for that fantastic conversation with Professor Velasco. You covered a lot of ground in that interview, but at the same time, you know, we're just scratching the surface. The issues of justice and development within post-conflict societies are extremely complex and multifaceted. As your conversation so effectively illustrates, it's more complicated than that. You've been listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast on world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. This episode was conceived by Emma Falkenstein, hosted by Stacey Philbrick-Yadov and Kevin Dunn. The producer was me, Kelly Walker. This has been a production of the IR program at HWS and the Geneva Sound Factory. Thanks for listening.